HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is supported by Pop M, a unique shop located in Littleton, New Hampshire, and by ICE, the Institute of Culinary Education. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview someone who I admire in the world of food and hospitality. And this week, I have the most extraordinary guest who's here all the way from Ghana. She actually grew up in Westchester, which, uh, as you might know, is just a little bit north of New York City. But after going to Dartmouth and then spending time, um, 10 years, actually, that's a lot of time, uh, (laughs) traveling with the UN, um, she has made a choice to be a big part of the food world and influence the the food of her country, um, Ghana, and she has a, a pop-up. So without further ado, I'm incredibly excited to have Selassie Atadika. Atadika. <laughs> you can see how hard it would be for me to learn foreign languages, because it's just not, doesn't, um, doesn't land with me. Anyway, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, so you... Grew up uh, till you were age six in yeah. Ghana, and yeah. then you um, you came to the U.S. Uh, what was it like to you know have that change at such a young age, and what propelled you to move from Ghana to the states? Um, I think I was young enough to kind of go with the flow, <laughs> but uh, my uh, there was a political unrest in my home country of Ghana, and uh, my family had to leave. And uh, so we found our way to the U.S. And, um, yeah, that's, that, I mean, I would say that's the short version of the story. <laughs> I'm sure it's quite a bit, quite a bit longer than, than that. Was it, um, do you have a sense of anxiety of leaving what you knew behind and coming to this place that was completely unknown? Or were you in such a, like, a family bubble, you're just happy to be together? I think it was a family bubble. I mean, when we left, I think we didn't really know. We were kind of going on an adventure and, you know, like, excited to get on the plane and fly somewhere. And we weren't, you know, sure exactly where we were going. Um, but uh, we ended up in New York. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and when you were in New York, you, you went to, to grade school here. Yeah. And were people embracing of your difference and the culture that you came from? Uh, it was. I would say it's mixed. I mean, there was always a lot of teasing that happens when you're a kid. And there's also misunderstandings. I mean... I, it's interesting now that I have friends that are also African that have moved to the U.S. when they were growing up, and we were always like, did you get that same question, too? The questions were always like, did you have a pet lion? Did you live in a treehouse? Did you, you know, so I mean, there's all really these... really true? I mean, people actually... People <laughs> no, no, really, those, those were the questions, they, and it's amazing because literally with a lot of my other friends that are African that moved here, it's like, did you, you also got that question? <laughs> we're like, what's going on in American TV? And like, you know, and, and so there are all these, you know, preconceived notions, and so... Um, 
Yeah. <laughs> so it's 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 really interesting. So there's there's I would say that there was a little bit of teasing from some people, but more of it would be an a lack of un- yeah, a lack of understanding or even conceptualization of it. I love, do you do a lot of themed dinners? I try to, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so I mean the sardines, it was um, the fresh sardines, okay, the canned sardines are normally eaten with something called gari. Uh Gari is a dried cassava, that's cassava that's been grated and dried and sometimes fermented, Um, and it's something that parents also send with their kids, and so you just add hot water, and then it creates something called eba, which is just like a starch that you eat with the sardines. So what I did was I actually did a stuffed did a filling with the gari and stuffed and rolled it in the fresh sardines. Oh my god, <laughs> that sounds so good. So um, I know that you grew up cooking with your mother. Yeah. And what was she cooking when she was in the States? Um, she cooked a lot of Ghanaian dishes. And I think the idea was that both my parents were working and um, dinner was the one meal that kind of brought the whole family together and I think particularly my dad missed you know traditional food so it was always Ghanaian dishes that we had for dinner and um, honestly I think before I went to college it was really my mother's birthday and mother's day that were (laughs) only days off and we we literally ate Ghanaian dishes um, throughout our childhood and um, she had ways of making modifications based on what she could and could not find Mm -hmm. Um, but um, so what could she find she could find um Let's see. There were some of the ingredients that are similar to a lot of Latin American uh, like cuisine. So, like we can find certain yams. Uh huh. Um, that time it was the Ninth Avenue. There used to be a street yeah. with several shops. So, um, and she's from the northern part of Ghana, and so it, there's a particular yam that she can, you know, just by looking at it, she'll know it's from her like her region. Wow. Of the country. Wow. And uh, so it would be certain types of yams, um, plantain, of course, mm-hmm. that we can get from a lot of shops even um, back then. Um, most of the spices she would have to make modifications for. Is that, I was wondering if the peppers or chilies yeah. or... We started using a lot of the jalapenos in place of sort of the scotch and the scotch bonnets in place uh-huh. of the traditional one. The traditional one is smaller than our scotch bonnets uh-huh. and it's, um, it's called pacochetto and it's actually a small, really fragrant green pepper. Hmm. Um, and um, so there's this chili sauce, but she would buy the ingredients and actually make it herself. Um, and um, did she have the time? I'm just amazed. That uh, she... That's actually how I ended up helping, being like her helper. Uh-huh. But um, yeah, she. I mean, she's a lawyer, and she would work and come home, and then we would do dinner together. And uh, do you have siblings? Yes, uh, sister and a brother. Oh right, and, and I'm, I'm the eldest. And where are the where are your siblings now? Uh, my sister is in New York, and my brother um, he's currently in California. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, so you're the you're the one who made the, the, big, the big journey back. Yes, the, the yeah. oldest. I wonder how do your parents feel about that. Um, I think it's mixed. I mean, clearly they would love it if I was closer. Yeah. But I think at a certain point, I'm also the one that's carrying the legacy of the family back in Ghana. So I think um, it's a mixed bag. You know, I think part of why I went back. Um, was feeling a sense of responsibility as the eldest to mm-hmm. have that link with my relatives and mm-hmm. with the country. My sister and brother are pretty much, you know, not going to move to Ghana. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, uh, you know, having, you know, family Thanksgivings here in the U.S., it was like there were five of us wow. um, for yeah. Christmas, five of us for... And meanwhile, my my um, my parents, I mean, my mother, there were eight of them in her family. Wow. And so, so you have a lot of... So when you went yeah. um, back to Ghana, mm-hmm. your whole family's there then? Yeah, yeah. My mom... Um, and they, didn't, they just didn't leave? No. Um, let's see. I have two of my aunts from my mother's side who... Um, one is in Nigeria and the other one lives in the UK, and um, but a majority of them stayed. Yeah, and same with my dad. So he's got his fa- side of the family that's also um, still there. And uh, so, yeah, it's a big extended family. <laughs> so when you were um, going to school in, in, um, in Westchester, uh-huh. what was that like? Ah, uh, let's see. It was... Uh, it was interesting. I mean, like, I think for my, my uh, siblings and myself, it kind of brought us closer together because uh-huh. we were a little different than yeah. everybody else. Um, so we, we, you know, we were quite close. Um, our focus really, as I said, was education. Yeah. And so, you know, I kind of had a one mission. Um, <laughs> that was it. Mind. And, and, then, uh, and yeah. then you got, so you got yourself to Dartmouth. Yeah, um, and I think from the time I was about five years old, I said I wanted to be a doctor, and my parents took it very seriously. Uh-huh. And, uh, <laughs> and what does that mean? You got uh, no, just my, I mean, like I, uh, when I was in in high school, I was um, I actually tracked. I was in the sort of math science track, uh-huh. and um, 
I think I did calculus. I my I think my sophomore, my junior year. So I like my senior year, I didn't. There were no math classes to take, um, and um, I took a, an optional science class where I was making anesthesia and oh aspirins and. I, um, after school, I would actually go to a medical center where we were doing research on E. coli. And that's, I mean, literally what I did after school when I wasn't playing volleyball or soccer. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I just loved being in the lab and I loved creating things and just playing around. That seems like, I mean, one doesn't want to mix E. coli and food, yeah. but, um, but that notion of, you know, creation, understanding how things go together. Yeah. And, and my first love in the kitchen was actually, um, the was baking so it makes perfect sense actually in terms of of the idea of formulas and and um, understanding how things uh, the chemical reactions that happen basically right and I can see easily how that would lead you to chocolate which we'll get to (laughs) a little bit later yeah but um so you ended up going to work at the UN yeah so I finished um I did the after I fell out of love with my pre-med program yeah um what made you fall out of love um because that is, I a, think it was physics. <laughs> <laughs> Just one course. Yeah, yeah that it was it. physics. Um, I ended up. I realized that I wanted to do something that supported society, but it wasn't necessarily medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, I one of the electives that I took while I was at Dartmouth was um, geography, human geography. And I really just took to that class and ended up uh, being a geography major, along with environmental studies. And um, I, I just, mean, I imagine that has become more and more interesting, right? I mean, people's fate is so tied to geography. And it was amazing because I didn't really understand it. But I think when I go back now and look at where what I've done, I just recently had my reunion um, at Dartmouth uh, a couple months ago. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, the question was, who's actually used their degree? <laughs> you know? like, and I was like, I think I have. Actually, I think I qualify. Um, so, yeah, so that that was um, what I majored in. And um, at the beginning, I thought I was going to do Peace Corps. And then later on, I actually decided um, that I wanted to join the United Nations. And um, I ended up doing work around that. And, um, and so what did you do? For- my, let's see, my first job was actually um, an admin assistant with UN Peacekeeping. I was a civilian, but I was working in Kosovo. That was my- <laughs> oh my God. I remember one of, my, one of my friends who, you know, did consulting. He was like, you know, Selassie, you don't have to take the first paying job that comes along. <laughs> and I was like, this is an amazing opportunity. I'm going to go. <laughs> wow. So I ended up um, being part of the first... Um, peacekeeping mission that had a gender unit and I was actually part of the the gender team um, and what does a gender team do basically um, they'd had um, let's see if I get get everything right but um, peacekeeping had not been engaging uh, women in the peace process Hmm. for many years and so that was one of the findings that came out and I think Kofi Annan was actually secretary general at the time and I forget the security council resolution but it just said that women must now be involved and engaged in when we look at peacekeeping and, and peace building. And so that was the very first one. And at the time I had been, I was an extra, Can we just pause and say, <laughs> that's amazing to have women not involved in the yeah, peacekeeping. Yeah. And especially when, when you look at history, a lot of the peacemakers um, are women. So usually it's the women that are like, we're tired of our kids being killed. We're, you know, and they're the ones that start to, I mean, if you look at the stories of Liberia, they're the ones that were sitting in this field every day waiting for the war to end you know so the same similar stories when you look at the Balkans but um yeah so it was the first one and at the time I'd been I was an intern with UNIFEM um and so you know it was a perfect match so I ended up going and what's UNIFEM sorry uh, United Nations this is before UN women it's a United Nations fund for women okay and so it was um an opportunity for me to actually learn more about the work um of the UN and how to better support women. So I, by the time, you know, they started this thing, it was a perfect match. I was someone who'd been working with UNIFEM. They needed someone who's an admin assistant. And, you know, it was right after I'd finished school. So great matchup. Um, so I did that. And then I also worked on minority protection. There were um, some groups within, um, at the time, Kosovo that were being sort of targeted. And so we did programming to find ways to support them. So that was kind of my first job, <laughs> I guess. Those yeah. were really intense. I mean, I feel like it's just as intense as, you know, curing cancer or making vaccines. Or I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting, and I, I, I always say somebody has to do it. But for me, I just I didn't, I didn't see the danger in it. 
it's kind of interesting because I never really saw the danger in it. For me, it was more of a mission of I'm here to be part of the solution. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I actually, in and retrospect... What, like, how, do you, how do you block out the danger? I think it actually might have more to do with how my family left Ghana. So I think for me, I see it as people in a situation that need support in their country. So I actually didn't make the connection until later on in life that that's probably what's driven me to feel that I'm helping people because I have come from a situation where, you know, help was needed or that I understand being taken out of your home country or right. being displaced in a way. Right. Yeah. Well, very displaced. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It makes you much more empathetic. Exactly. So but does I it make it the job it. harder because you have um, feelings, you, you know what they're going through. It's hard. Uh, I, I, for me, I didn't really. No. No. Good for I, you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it makes you much more effective. To yeah. Have, I just, I kind of stay focused on the task, but yeah. 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 And um, and then you did a lot of work in Africa. Yeah, so uh, I think my... I'll tell you the story about, you know, sleeping in a fridge, but... what Did I you really <laughs> sleep in a fridge? I hope the I, door was off. Um, the, no, the, oh, I had my foot in the door. So when I was in Kosovo, <laughs> when I was... I spent... Uh, I got there in, I think, November. I did one winter, and then that was a horrible winter. There was no electricity. Oh my and um, the heating system was based on electricity, so we didn't have heat. Oh. And um, it got to the point where the water was frozen in the building because it was an apartment building, so all the pipes are frozen with water. Oh, my god. And um, when you go to bed, it would just sort of, you know, you take a... I, would, I actually would be fully clothed, put on extra socks, and then a couple extra duvets, and then I would take a bottle of water in the sleeping bag with me and it was kind of like every morning it was like do I want to brush my teeth wash my face or clean my armpits with the water you got one choice yeah well you got two (laughs) (laughs) the next day you would like rotate but um there was one night I I got home and it was just so cold and I actually opened my fridge and noticed that my butter was actually getting soft and I realized that when there's no electricity your fridge is actually an insulator it's insulating against the, the heat, but it's actually insulating what's inside. So when, when it's off, it actually keeps things warm. So I actually took the butter out like the day before, not like thinking like, why is it soft? And then when I came home that, the next night, I was a little desperate and I realized like, that's a warm place. Oh, no. <laughs> so I actually was waiting for a friend to pick me up because I was just like, I'm going to, um, I just couldn't stay in the apartment. So I actually just kind of took the racks out and kind of backed in for a couple of minutes to just sort of like warm up a bit. Nothing like a place that's so cold that the refrigerator's yeah. warmer. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And did So you... after that I was like, I'm going to Africa. <laughs> it was like no more of like, you know, winters. I was like, I'm focused and we're going to Africa. That's where we're gonna work. And yeah. and so um what did you do in Africa? Um my let's see, the first thing the first place I worked, I did some work in uh, Angola. I did uh, human rights work with the the peacekeeping uh, mission there. And after that, I moved to Liberia, where I was started working with UNICEF. And that was um, supporting children that had been um, associated with the armed forces and armed groups. Oh and my so um, it was child protection work. And um, that's where, I mean, for me, that's those are some of the best times for me in terms of like feeling like I was really supporting and helping others. Um, and kind of directly seeing, you know, um, the impact of my work. I mean, there was one boy that I remember we'd managed to, he was always like the, he was, he was a little special, like in the, in the interim care center. So after they'd been removed from the forces, he was just, um, a kid that was a little different than the others and would always hug me whenever I would see him and stuff. And so, um, I would go there on Fridays just to sort of get a connection with the kids to talk to them about what they wanted in their future. So as we were doing programming, I could really integrate that into that work. And so um, a few months after he'd been reunified, I was on my way. There was a World AIDS Day um, parade, and I was supposed to speak with the young people about it. And all of a sudden, someone comes running up to me and, like, jumps on me, and I fall to the ground, and it's this kid who's like... I, you know, he lives in this um, internally displaced camp, and mm-hmm. he um, was reunified with his family. <gasps> and he wanted me to meet his mother oh, and his brother. Like, it was just oh, the most wonderful moment for me. Incredible. And um, so it was moments like that that I, I held on to in terms of my work over the years, because with that, it was just like, everything is worth it, you know? Yeah. yeah. But I guess the day-to-day is just grueling. Yeah. Um, so the switch to, I know that um, when you were in Senegal, you with a couple of also foodie friends. Yes, yeah. You did. A, so, yeah, a one of the things um, in terms of like moving around a lot is you end up 
sometimes doing things the easy way, which is um, going to a grocery store. And most of these grocery stores have imported products, uh -huh. which ends up being a bit expensive. But then you also kind of feel like, you know, what's out here, what's available locally. And so I started a, um, a cooking club with some friends. And um, I tend to be a little competitive sometimes. <laughs> so um, we had a criteria. So um, every month we would meet and we would choose... I think uh, two fruit, two vegetable, a starch, and a, an herb uh -huh. that we would all have to cook with in some way, either first um, a starter, main course, or dessert. And we cri the criteria for voting, we would all eat, and then we would all kind of fill out a form, and, for, and we would select for which course we thought was the best, I mean, who prepared the best of which course, and it was on visual, you know, like presentation, taste, use of the ingredients, and creativity. And the three of us um, kept winning and kept winning, and people started getting annoyed and stopped showing up, you know? <laughs> so um, the three of us eventually um, decided to go to the CIA Pro Chef program. Right. And so um, oh, we did that, and after we finished, uh, we passed, you know, we did the exam and everything after the course. We went back to work, and um, the other two were also back working. back to work. Yeah. <laughs> I, that's so hard to imagine, you know, helping these kids yeah. in these difficult situations. And then cooking, like, they, yeah, seem, they so, seem so disparate. Well, I think for, for, for me, one of the outlets that I had was, it was a, a creative outlet for me. Yeah. I'd always loved food, so, I mean, um, even when I was in, in college, I, I used to, like, cater small, you know, events for friends and stuff like that. Um, and the other two were very much similar in that way. And um, what I thought was fun about it was we, we traveled a lot, but it was a moment that everyone could kind of bring people together for something new and different. And um, we ended up doing food that you, you would not see in Senegal. And Senegal is actually an amazing food scene. Absolutely. So, incredible. I mean, <laughs> to, to go there and try to do something food-related that is, you know, that is different, you know, you have to push yourself to the next level. <laughs> so um, we started doing that, fantastic, amazing ingredients, um, and um, the three of us actually were all working in regional offices and did a lot of travel, but we still, it was kind of an extreme hobby. Um, yeah, it's yeah. like some, some people might fly for a hobby, <laughs> you've got putting together these yeah. competitive yeah. meals. And um, when you thought about having a career shift, because I'm obsessed mm -hmm. with the notion of, uh -huh. you know, changes in career, how did you think about changing from the UN or yeah. peacekeeping or the, all these different things you were doing mm -hmm. and traveling so much yeah. and then choosing something else to do? Like, what was there a moment that you mm -hmm. made that decision? Yeah. Or? I think there were probably maybe at least two moments in there, but um, I ended up doing a lot of work with regional offices um, with UNICEF, so I, I spent time in Nairobi covering um, East and Southern Africa, and um, so I covered and traveled to countries from Ethiopia, like Eritrea to Ethiopia, um, Madagascar, you know, all the way down to South Africa, Botswana, and then at, at the same time, I then when I was based in Senegal, covered West and Central Africa. I never got to Mauritania, but um, <laughs> going all the way to Central African Republic, so like all the way through. And so I ate really well, um, and I just, I had an amazing time, and I had two reflections, was one, I felt really lucky that I got to experience and taste food that a lot of people would never have, mm -hmm. um, and I, the second aspect of it was, um, I also at the same time felt found myself defending African food a lot. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of my colleagues who didn't understand some of the, the food we were eating, and I kind of felt like it's really good. And I had this one moment where... <laughs> I, I love that. <laughs> it's good. Don't you people understand? Well, I mean, for me... Like, do you think that they were just being Euro-judgy, or...? I think that um, a couple things. Some of the places we were, um, for example... Some of the places I, okay, the one moment that I really was like, you know what, I'm going to go to culinary school <laughs> and I'm going to show them, um, <laughs> was when I was in Central African Republic and my friends and I, I managed to get them to, to go on holiday with me. Well, they work there and I, uh -huh. I went to visit them and I told them that we were going to go on holiday and, and see the gorillas and um, go into sort of the, um, the rainforest and check it out. So it took us two days to drive. And we got to this um, lodge and um, met this young French um, student who was doing his, like, um, one year off, I think, before or after university or before university. 
and his father's it's his father's friend who owns this lodge and you know he just was going off about how horrible african food was and i was like how many countries have you been to <laughs> and he's in this literally a village in the middle of nowhere and central african republic is actually i think at the time it was the second from the bottom in terms of um, human development index but it was in the middle of a raging like well, it wasn't raging at the time. It was in the middle of a lot of civil turmoil. Mm-hmm. So food systems had broken down and, right. all, you know, a lot of the um, traditional systems have broken down. So what he was seeing was not what it's supposed to be. And I kind of always reference when I went to Cuba, it was, you see these amazing, gorgeous buildings. Mm-hmm. They're not in their prime, but right. you know where they were. Right. It's kind of like Sophia Loren. You know, like, you know, you know, she, you know she's gorgeous. She's still gorgeous, but she was, you know, something Even else more before. Yeah. yeah. So I, I kind of feel like in a lot of these countries, there has been a breakdown in food systems. Um, um, families have broken apart. People have stopped cooking for different reasons, and people are making do with what they have. So it's not always the way we look at, um, you know, heritage cuisine in that kind of way so I could always kind of see where it's coming from and knowing that you know like when I was in Cuba like a lot of the food is still being affected by was at the time when I went affected by you know the um well scarcity I'm sure yeah exactly and embargoes Um, exactly so um for me I can see the bones of the cuisine Mm -hmm. but also because it the bones of the cuisine the cuisine has always been what I held on to for culture in our family so so you know in terms of my family my Eva is not very great, mm-hmm. but I can understand it, but I know the food more. You know, like yeah. food is the one thing that even, you know, my brother who who was younger when we came over, he doesn't understand Eva. But let me tell you, when he was um, in university and started losing weight, my mom started preparing the food, sending it into thermoses and uh-huh. doing FedEx next day delivery to him. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. What was in that thermos? Um, it's a dish called palava sauce. And what's that? <laughs> it's um, usually, traditionally, it's made with cocoa yam leaves or taro leaves, but huh. um, my mom makes it with spinach. And she uses, uh, makes it with lemon. That's the substitution. Yeah. <laughs> you, just, you need to be able to substitute a few yeah. of these things. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the... We're gonna. I'm just gonna ask you one more question. Then mm-hmm. we're gonna take a quick break, and we'll return and talk all about the um, the foods of Africa that you celebrate and prepare for guests all over the world. Really, mm-hmm. which is so extraordinary. Okay. Um, but you you seem very mission driven, and it seems that the mission is very clear. If you're helping um, with UNICEF, yeah, was it? Um, an internal conversation mm-hmm. with yourself, you know, how important can food be if I'm sort of saving, yeah. I'm saving lives, I'm yeah. reuniting families, yeah. I'm uh, doing this really big work that um, is very clear, and yet what you've um, chosen to do, it's also very big work, but yeah. it's very, it's a very different yeah. thing. I think... Um at the the last, you know, when I was in Senegal, I, I did a lot of work around, um, well, we did a lot of preparedness and um, disaster risk reduction, and um, we did support also to malnutrition or nutrition crisis, food insecurity, um, and what I realized is, is there's a lot of stuff that's actually available um, if we use it right. And stuff by stuff, you mean? Uh, what I mean is, okay, so for example, uh, the questions around uh, malnutrition. Okay, every three to five years, there is a crisis in the Sahel, and there is um, drought or drought-like conditions, and the food stocks go down, and um, it affects a lot of people, and uh, disproportionately children, mm-hmm. right? And um, one of the uh, main well, one of the treatments, actually, that we use is something called Plumpy Nut, and it's a fortified, basically, peanut butter. Uh-huh. And, um... It has a good name. Yes, plumpy I know. Nut. Yeah. Is Plumpy actually a nut, or is that, like, <laughs> j- like Jif? Is it... It's, it's literally, it's, it's, it's peanut butter that's yep. been fortified, and the company that makes it is in, uh... It's a French company that has the, um, patent for it. Fascinating. Okay. And, um, for me, it was one of these questions where, you know, we, at the time, there were, I think... There's now one factory in West Africa, but there were not when the first crisis hit. And so here we are bringing in tons of peanut butter, I mean, plumpy nut. It's, and it's actually a medical treatment because it, hmm. it's fortified to the point where one carton of this saves a child's life. I wow. mean, so it's, it's really important stuff. But I'm looking at it and saying we have 
the world's, I mean, how many countries in West Africa are growing peanuts as their, their, their staple crop? And, and, and it's everywhere. But we're not even able to use it to su- support. So for me, it's, it's kind of like if we have peanuts available mm-hmm. um, locally, what are we not doing right with nutrition locally mm-hmm. um, so that we don't get to the situation where we're in need of that? Um, what are the crops that we should be growing? We know that there's drought coming. There's mm-hmm. climate change coming. What are we going to do? What should we be eating? What should we be adapting to to actually find ways? Because I, 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 I do believe that a lot of the solutions are in the continent mm-hmm. for the problems in the continent. So um, I started asking myself questions about this um, and looking at our food systems in West Africa particularly and realized that actually behavior change can come through beautiful, sexy food, actually. Um, and also rethinking and, and reevaluating what um, we're eating and what we should be wanting to eat. I don't know if that makes sense. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you can make anything desirable. I feel yeah. like it's the, it's the paddlefish um, dilemma. You know, you rename and all, all of yeah. a sudden it's very appealing. Yeah. Um, marketing of food is its own animal. But... <laughs> Uh, so is what you're saying that though from the outside, like me, it might look like it might look to me mm-hmm. as though you're having dinner parties and you're highlighting um, the foods of Africa. Mm-hmm. You have your deeper purpose there is to is back to education, the thing that has motivated you mm-hmm. forever, um, but to educate the people on what's possible, like on some bigger Yeah, I think that I started with what I could do, which is, okay, let's make it attractive. Mm -hmm. So there's an element of it is, you know, people are drawn to attractive food. They're going to engage with it. So part of it is at my dinners, I tell the story of where the food comes from. Um, I'm also supporting local producers. um, And I'm able to tell the story both to the diners and luckily, you know, to the outside world in terms of what I'm trying to do. <clears throat> I'm hoping to now scale it to the point where there's two components. One is the component of how do we push for larger behavior change because not everyone can come to my dinners and not everyone can afford my dinners. And we can talk a little bit more also about why and the yeah. cost of food yeah. and, you know, why is food expensive and um, what can be done about it. But for now, you know, I would say that not everyone can come to my table. I would like more people to, but not everyone can come to the table. But how do I also get the average Ghanaian to, or, you know, wherever, to start thinking about what they eat in terms of what it's doing for you and what the climate can, and what the ground, the soil can, can support. So, for example, in Ghana right now, it has become a very big rice culture, and a lot of the rice is actually coming from um, Asia. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the local rice farmers are not able to sell their rice. And so when you look at all of these, but at the same time, I think there are projects now coming into Ghana where they're going to be planting jasmine and basmati rice, which is what the market wants. Mm-hmm. But my question is, what does the soil want? Because if you're planting basmati and, and uh, jasmine, it's going to take a lot more water. And we know that already There's uh, the cycles have changed, the rain patterns have changed. And... We've got millet and sorghum, which do really well with poor water and poor soil content. And we also have things like bambara groundnuts, which are kind of, they look like chickpeas that help to fix the soil. So, you know, should we not be saying this is what works for our soil and let's see how to get young people, particularly the children, to get into eating these foods so that we can actually support the country. I mean, one of the things I realized when I moved back was... um, a lot of my age mates and stuff were, we left in 81, my family left Ghana in 1981, and um, a lot of my classmates, I should say age mates, um, who were in boarding school were telling me stories how in 1983 they went to boarding school, when they were in boarding school they would go to the canteen and they would be told, you know, come back for dinner later. And um, come back for dinner later was because they had sent someone out to go and buy food. And just the historic on that was, you know, there was a, the military coup d'etat and there was no foreign exchange coming into Ghana. Mm. And there's no foreign exchange means that we weren't able to buy the foodstuffs that we were buying from outside. Mm. So all of a sudden, this has created a, a, like a food security issue. And it's actually not, uh, there was a lean year that year, but it was not 100% because of the, the rainfall. Mm-hmm. It was actually probably more because we were not able to grow food to feed ourselves. And I say, how do you build a nation when you don't eat and produce what 
you grow. So when you look at a country like Ghana, a lot of our, our, our farmers are growing pineapples, mangoes, and, and, and things that you know are going to be sold to make international exchange to buy what we need. And that puts us also in, a, I think, from a, my, my second degree was in international security, focusing on security policy. What kind of deals will you sign if you know that this is what you need to do? Yeah, it's um, it's so complex, yeah. right? And uh, you know, many countries confronted. I was uh, talking with Jose Andreas, who is obviously mm-hmm. deeply involved in um, food food security around the world, and mm-hmm. he talks about unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it might seem like it's a really great thing to be growing mangoes for export, and you have the cash, but if you're not feeding yourself. Um, yeah. Or or the the rice situation, mm-hmm. you know, the idea that you can grow yeah. millet and sorghum. But I mean, we have. Let's see. I think it was sixty million dollars was spent on importation of onions uh, in twenty sixteen in Ghana. And if you think about that, how many people can you employ if you were able to grow grow them? your onions? Yeah. So it's actually also stimulating the economy in, in a whole new way. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the food is just, it's, it, it's what keeps everything. We're gonna, with that, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back, and we're going to talk about some of the really beautiful, incredible foods of Africa that Selassie has um, cooked with and is trying to bring to new audiences. So stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Pop M, a unique shop teeming with vibrant colors and a wash in pop art, located in Littleton, New Hampshire. Its alternative cafe marries healthy and fresh with luscious and decadent treats. At Pop M, indie brands and local artists mingle, bringing quality and hot off the press style. Follow Pop M at popm.nh. This episode is also brought to you by the Institute of Culinary Education a career cooking school with culinary arts, pastry and baking arts, restaurant and culinary management, and hospitality management programs, plus more than 1,500 recreational food and beverage classes a year. Earn a diploma in 6 to 12 months at the New Yorker LA campus. Land an externship in the top cities for restaurants and hospitality, and find your culinary voice. Learn more at ice.edu. Dana, and we're back with Speaking Broadly, and my guest today is Slasi Adika. Atadika. Atadika. <laughs> I'm never going to get it right. Um, Atadika. And we've been talking for the last little bit about um, her extraordinary life to date, which involves, um, you know, trying to get warm in a refrigerator in um, Kosovo and also um, helping children, people around the world, and also being cognizant of, um, you know, food insecurity and how to address it in your own country. Mm-hmm. So uh, you're addressing very, very large questions, mm-hmm. but you're also doing what you can do, which I think is the most important thing, right? Because if you tried to solve the problem yeah. of the trade imbalance, um, well, you probably could do that, frankly, <laughs> but um, but I like that, uh, you know, you've started with dinner parties. They, they can bring people together, but you yeah. can really have a conversation, yeah. and then you can share the conversation, and that conversation can grow and grow and grow. Yeah. So um, I'd love you to... Tell me, like, what do you serve at a typical... Uh, my nomadic is there, dinners. Is there a typical dinner for you? Or um, I change every every dinner. It's like a, a new menu or um, uh, a mix of, of what I've done before. So um, the ideas behind the nomadic dinner is we change location every time. So wait, I, when are you going to come to America and do it? I'm actually planning on spending the next few months around here. Yeah. You are? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God, we're so lucky. <laughs> Wait, well, we're going to have to talk about that more later. Okay. But um, I didn't know you were going to stay. Yeah, well, not, not full time, but I want to I spend a chunk of time. And um, one of the things I did, I uh, think about a month ago, I, um, I did a guest lecture at the CIA at Hyde Park. 
And um, I was talking about, you know, African cuisine, and I asked the room of students how many of them had had an interaction with African food. And out of a group of, I think, 60 students, two raised their hand, and both of them was linked to family reasons. And I just said to myself, wow, like, how are we going to move and get people to taste our food and understand our cuisine and be excited about it if, you know, we only have two people in in a crowd? So I think it just made me realize that I think, you know, it would, it would be interesting and, and exciting to spend a bit more time here to actually get people to understand and know more about what I'm doing. Um, so, yeah, so the normal, I do a nomadic dinner, and I started doing them about three years ago, three and a half years ago in Ghana. Um, we try to change locations, and uh, each time we change the theme, and um, I send out the menu, and people can just join, and um, they get their ticket online, they get the location about two days before, and um, it's uh, usually one long table or two long tables, and everyone just kind of comes and joins in and um, make new friends, basically. Um, the dinners are themed, and uh, depending on what um, I'm feeling or what's going on, I, I change the theme. So sometimes if it's, uh, I think this year, the beginning of this year, we did superfoods, African superfoods, because it was, you know, the beginning of the year, everyone's trying to eat healthy, so it was highlighting some of the f- superfoods that we have in the continent, um, and, and I, are yeah. these? Are, um, yeah, I'm dying to know what they are. So, yeah, you're you're talking about um, a singer who whose song Africa yes. mentions so many foods. So I listened yeah. to that. I'm yes. trying to you know pick up all of the um, all of the references to all of the foods. But I I think that fufu is the clo- fufu, yes yeah. the closest I've gotten. So yes. I can't wait to hear more. Um, so yeah, so I what I try to do is because I also find that. Um, if I say Ghana, um, there are people in Accra, which is the capital, that may not know some of the dishes from the northern part of the country. At the same time, there are people in Accra who are um, both internationals uh, and, and Ghanaians um, who may not know what is eaten in Nigeria or you know another African country. So I also try to bring in themes that are around the continent, either you know, it's sub-regional cuisine um, sometimes it'll be something from the American South. I did one which was um, Afro-Brazilian mm. uh, because in Ghana we actually had um, a group of, um, um, we call them in Ghana Toban people, um, but they are um, freed slaves from Brazil that came back and they settled in Accra. And there's actually an area in a community where they their descendants live. Mm. And so we did a dinner in that home, one of their homes, and um It's interesting because there are certain ingredients from West Africa that went to Brazil and Uh some of the um, Brazilian ingredients and items that came back. So, for example, there's one dish that you'll find throughout most of West Africa. It's um, um, cowpeas Mm -hmm. that are soaked, that, um, you know, you blend um, and you make into a fritter. Mm-hmm. And uh, in um, the northern part of Ghana, we call it kose. Mm-hmm. Um, in the southern part of Ghana, it's called akara. Nigeria, it's called akara. It's called akara also in Senegal. Mm-hmm. And uh, in Brazil, it's called akaraje. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, um, they have a slightly different way of doing it that um, involves like stuffing it with shrimp mm-hmm. that we don't traditionally do. And um, so the idea is just to have a... Um, a dinner where we have a menu that has a theme where we can have a conversation around sort of food ways. Mm-hmm. Um, the last one I did was um, it was Wakanda themed because I was uh-huh. shocked that in uh, Black Panther there was actually no real food scene. There was one tiny little scene. That is so surprising. You know, I mean, they they thought about everything about yeah. what that that would look World like, would but um, there was nothing about food, and I was <laughs> like, really. And the, the interesting <laughs> thing is is that particularly in West Africa, everything revolves around food, um, and a lot of um, a lot of phrases re- revolve around food. So, for example. In um, in slang, sort of, if um, you think someone's cheating you, mm-hmm. you'll say you're chopping my money, which is chopping means eating. Oh. So like, so there's so many phrases and, yeah. and, and things that we say that revolves around food that I was really, you know, like really they they, they decided How to leave that alone. That? Yeah. So for that dinner, for example, um, you know, I had um, I decided to push the envelope a little bit, and um, there's a dish from Nigeria that. Um, uses uh, goat head. It's called, it's a goat head stew, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things I really like about African cuisine is that we really don't waste much. Yes. And um, I just think it's an ingenious 
usage of um, of parts, you know, really nose to tail cooking. So I did the 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 dish, and um, I actually, you know, and the other link is that in a lot of um, traditional ceremonies and big celebrations there's always usually in the traditional sense there's like an animal that is sort of like offered so for example if there's a, yeah there's like a there's a wedding you know if it's a big wedding you kill the cow and right. you know or a goat depending on you know what you have and um, so I think that that element of celebration royalty and everything kind of made sense for me so that was one of that was our first course that um, the guests got to walk in and see, like, you know, there's, like, a goat head, <laughs> a skull. <laughs> That's very dramatic. <laughs> so, I mean, for me, it was also a, a conversation about using everything. So um, we definitely make sure we have options for vegetarians mm-hmm. and um, everyone is welcome. So it's, you know, we, we, we manage the different um, dietary um, preferences. But I usually, in my meal, try to make sure that the animal protein is less uh-huh. um, because I do think that when we look at feeding as many people as possible, mm-hmm. we need to really be careful about how much animal protein we're using because, we, for example, we don't in Ghana have, you know, regenerative beef. So, so, right. <laughs> so you know, you, you kind of have to balance it out and, and look at alternative, you know, I use a lot of beans in my cooking and bean leaves are a great source of protein and, yeah. you know, so um, we, we, we mix it up, but I, I try to look at telling a story around what is available and what we need to appreciate more. So, um there are certain dishes, for example, like the peanut, again, going mm-hmm. back to the peanut. Um, the mighty peanut. Yes, but I also find it like the humble peanut, uh-huh. you know. Um, it's A lot of people see it as a bar snack. Uh-huh. And so I uh, decided to make it into a dessert. And um, I did my first iteration of it when I was in Senegal. And I did a, um, a trio of, of peanut-related desserts. Mm. And uh, it's now evolved into a dessert Okay, in Ghana, there's a street food called um, Kofi, Kofi Brookman. Mm-hmm. Kofi is like a very traditional name, kind of like John Doe, so uh-huh. like everyone's named Kofi. Like, we have day names, and Kofi is a very popular one. Kofi Annan would be uh, one. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so Kofi Brookman is basically a street, it's a slang for street food, uh-huh. which is um, roasted peanuts and plantain, that, uh, roasted plantain that you'll, you can buy on the roadside. Mm-hmm. And uh, usually it's not expensive, so regardless of your budget, any broke man, anybody can afford to buy it. So it's a very like you know when you're you're um, out and about, and you know you need a snack. It's a perfect balance. You've got yeah. the carbohydrates, you've got your 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 protein and everything ready to go. So um, I was inspired by that, and I turned it into a dish that has several layers, so um, different textures of one plantain when it's black. Hmm. You know, it's been used in a cake yeah. that I learned um, from uh, my time in Liberia. There's another version of it, which is just, you know, simple green plantain chips. Um, I've taken the peanut. I've done one version, which is a mousse using um, a traditional recipe from Ghana, which has chili, ginger, sugar mixed in with the peanuts. And it's this amazing, like, spiced... Um, I turn it into a like a mousse mm-hmm. and then at the same time we have crushed groundnuts you know and then I add a little bit of, of, of herbs to it to, and, and citrus to lighten it up and um, I call it Kofi Richmond <laughs> <laughs> so you know it's, it's finding ways to take things that are sort of peanut and plantain which is really simple humble food but elevating it to a space where it can be on a table for any and everyone um, in a different way to experience it and I think I want to find ways to add pride and dignity to our, our, our cuisine, you know. So in the work that you did before the, mm-hmm. the cooking, you were working very much with your mind. Uh-huh. And now you're working very much, I mean, it's very physical. Yeah. All the cooking for people, and you have to clean up, mm-hmm. and you have to prep, and you have to shop. Yeah. Um, is there something gratifying about that? Abs- well, yeah, absolutely. I think um, it's one of these things where I always, halfway through the event, I'm like, why am I doing this? <laughs> and then by the time I, I wake up why. the next morning, I am like, okay, the next dinner, we're going to have this, you know. Um, like right now, I'm actually thinking through my my um, my menu for the, the next nomadic dinner, and I'm trying to figure out, you know, my inspiration right now is agroecology. So it's like, how do I bring some of those principles into the menu and the dishes that I'm going to serve? So are you going to be um, cooking while you're in... New York or this area? Um, so I will be heading back very soon. Yeah. Um, but I do plan to spend a few months uh, mostly in the New York area, and I would love to actually cook. Um, you know, I also have a lot of high school friends that are like, hey, we want to taste your food and college exactly. friends. Exactly. So, oh, my yeah. gosh. I can see quite, <laughs> quite a series. Yeah. Um, and then what's the response been? You know, people come to your dinner, and they does it open their eyes? Have they... 
you know, what is that like? Um, I would say for a lot of the Ghanaians, um, I love this moment where it's like, this is our food. And it's, it's uh, and our food can be like this. Yeah. Um, I know we had a high level, you know, event, and I think it was, you know, people from from government were like, we didn't know our food could look like this. Mm. And we've had um, also expatriates who live in Ghana, who some of them are, you know, ambassadors, etc., who have lived in the country for a little while, but they have not experience food in this way and so for them um, they get excited about it and people are like hey we have visitors coming from our home country and we would love to show them this expression of Ghanaian cuisine um, but we also have you know people who see a lot of street food and I like to play around with street food uh-huh. and elevate it um, because I, I do think that there is um, it's kind of like that soul food that you you know you want and you're missing and being Part of my thesis is also when you get to a certain level in society, you stop eating certain things because you're, you, you, you for example, um, sugar cane. I love sugar cane, but I will not buy street sugar cane anymore. I know too much about <laughs> food safety to like yeah. just buy it off the woman on the street, you know, yeah. and so I would never, so when am I going to, you know, unless you go home and like you literally buy the sugar cane and strip it down, which is actually a, a very hard outside and Mm -hmm. it takes time, you're probably not going to eat sugarcane very often. Um, So I try to find certain things that I know that people may not, because, uh, you know, maybe they're they're just not going to engage with anymore or as much as they want to. Um, I try to have some of those dishes. And so I've had um, a lot of people who've like maybe lived in Ghana for a few years. I've heard about this dish so much, but I never felt comfortable to try it until today. So that's been my reaction. And I think... um, also, you know, when I've done stuff here with Ghanaian dishes, you know, I think people just don't know what it is. So it's like once they try it, they like it. Um, well, so they're it seems surprised. Like, <laughs> it also seems like you've done quite a bit to take the, the fundamentals and yeah. elevate them. Another thing you've elevated is the chocolates. I've seen your yes, chocolates. Yeah. They're so beautiful. Thank you. Um, is that a business you're running alongside? Do you do it just when you're, um, when you're able? And can you just, just describe for everyone who's listening uh, those chocolates and how you put them together and sure. the African elements inside yeah, of Yeah, so um, my brother-in-law, who, um, when I was moving back, was like, hey, you know, Ghana is so famous for chocolates, but there's not, like, amazing chocolate coming out of Ghana. And, you know, I always try to find ways to add value to local ingredients, so I took that on as a challenge. <laughs> and um, basically, my chocolates are an expression of my love to the continent. I just think that there's so many amazing spices and fruits and um, just flavors that people are not familiar with. And I think that chocolate is an easy vehicle to get people to, I mean, everyone loves, pretty much everybody loves chocolate, but it's just, it's an easy vehicle to um, send something new in. And I think whenever you're trying to get someone to try something new, you give them something they know with something they don't know. And all of a sudden, it, it becomes easy to accept. And so uh, the flavors um, tend to be a little on the savory side. Uh-huh. Um, so with my sort of more cooking background, the idea was, how do I take all these amazing spices and flavors that exist in the continent and put them in chocolate to allow people to experience something they never have? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm not going to... The idea is not to give you a chocolate that you would get in France. Right. Um, I'm giving you an expression of where it comes from and to tell the African story through chocolate or through chocolate flavors or flavors in chocolate. They're all named after women. Hmm. And uh, I think that women are the custodian in most cultures of um, our culinary sort of heritage. And I wanted to pay homage to them um, through that. And um, we have different collections, um, some that are spiced. So I always try to cover the continent. So with every collection, I try to have um, flavors that would represent the north mm-hmm. of Africa, East Africa, Southern Africa, and West Africa. Um, so that's that's basically what I'm doing with the chocolates. Um, we're still trying to roll them out. I, I can be a bit of a temperamental artist when it comes to things, so <laughs> I I want to not. Um, right now, I there's no preservatives in them, so you know it makes it difficult to kind of um, sell them outside. So I'm now having my personal kind of dilemma you know how long should they keep um so and and how you know do i because i want more people to try them Mm -hmm. there's been a lot of interest and so um i'm hoping to actually figure out how to 
get them into the U.S. in the next, you know, maybe by early next year. I feel like you could have someone make them with you in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great book. We can talk about that later. <laughs> okay, yeah. I just think that that would be it would be great for people to be able to experience those flavors. Yeah. And you were talking about educating, yeah. you know, people here as well as yeah. educating people back home. And chocolate just seems like what didn't talk about an easy education. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there's one flavor that I did. Uh, we did a dinner um, at the Beard House, and it was um, the, the truffles. We give them at the end of the dinner, and. Um, I think, you know, when you give something like that to foodies, they want to know what's in it. And this one, it's a, a blend of five spices that are um, indigenous to West Africa. So they were like, oh, is it rosemary? And I'm like, no. Is it cinnamon? And I was like, no. And so like, I was like, you've actually never tasted the spice before. <laughs> and that just like blows everybody's mind. Like, what do you mean? I am such a foodie. I, I, I don't know. know. Everything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Oh. So, yeah. I love that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I imagine some of the base spices, not that blend, because I know yeah. it's your own blend, mm-hmm. but the base spices probably are available here yeah. um, in a way that they wouldn't have been. Yeah, I would say that, for example, ago. if you're looking at um, the North African spices, you can definitely get those here. Um, the you know, There's a lot of um, general flavorings that you can get locally. So, I mean, I would say that a lot of the savory side of our kitchen goes back to most traditional cuisines what I mean by that is everyone did preservation right so um, there's a lot of smoking drying salting fermentation that happened in everyone's kitchen and those same things apply to African cuisine so when you go to West Africa we smoke our smoke dry salt our fish there's some fish that's fermented as well and you know I think I always say everyone has a stinky food <laughs> so whether it's you know the stinky funky cheese that you get in, in in France whether it's the kimchi that you get in Asia you know everybody has a fermented funky food and we're not used to everybody else's yeah but I'm like you know I remember when I um when I graduated uh undergrad and my one of my friends that was Korean she whenever we went anywhere she was bring her kimchi uh-huh. and back then we were like who brought the kimchi you know and now we're like who's bringing the kimchi you know and that conversation has changed and I think yeah. the same thing will happen I think for African cuisine and I think people just need to It'll take a little bit of time, but I think once people engage with it, they'll, you know, there are a lot of similarities and familiarities that... that So, is there a a woman who you've followed in the the food world, like, as you've gone on this journey, um, who you want to call out? I love paying it forward on this program, and um, so I just... Is there someone who comes to mind... Uh, in the food industry? In the food industry. Let's see. I mean, I... That's a good... That's a hard question. <laughs> um, I mean, there's there's a lot of women that I, I, I follow. I mean, one of the women who um, is a Ghanaian woman, um, and she's in her... I think she must be in her 70s now. Um, she's kind of like the grandmother uh-huh. of Ghanaian cuisine, and she's someone who went into this when it was not cool <laughs> when it wasn't hip and, and what's her and, name uh, barbara Bida. okay and uh so she has um actually put together sort of a, a good reference document because in, in ghana it's hard to find um it's actually hard to find a lot of books mm-hmm. um written down with recipes and so she's actually one of the people who spent time uh doing that and um there's a it's a co-written book and i'm trying to remember there's um her name is Fran. I'm trying to remember her last name, but the two of them uh, did this book together, which I think for me is is fantastic. And um, the beginnings, you know, she she for me, she's someone that has started um, started documenting and working on um, taking Ghanaian cuisine outside and pushing the envelope on that and letting. Um, she has a culinary. She has a catering school also in Ghana, and so for me, it's also someone who made it something that was a profession, you know, made it professional and made it something that um, people should strive towards and not something that I think in the past before her, it was more of a um, a vocation mm-hmm. that you chose because you were not good in school. Mm-hmm. And so, or maybe not chosen, you were given. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so she was someone that was like, it's okay. You know, it's, it's, and it's, you can, it's, it's a profession, you know, you can make a living from it. 
Um, so in terms of that, I think she's someone who I look up to uh, in terms of that. That's Well, that is the um, wrap-up to the show. I wanted to thank you so much for mm-hmm. coming and joining me. If people want to follow you yeah. on your adventures and learn more about Madunu, if I yeah. pronounced that right. Yeah. Um, you know, how would they find you if they're... Yeah, so we are... Um, Midunu is that sort of the Midunu savory... <laughs> it's a savory side of the business, and uh, that is Midunu.com is our website, and it's Midunu on um, Instagram as well as on Twitter. And for our chocolates, we have uh, MidunuChocolates.com and Midunu Chocolates on Instagram. That's great. And you guys know where to find me, FW Scout. Um, you can find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram. Always love to hear from you. Love to hear feedback on this incredible show. And I look forward to having you join me next week. So have a great week, guys. See you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.